Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. What is the economic cost of LGBTI plus exclusion? Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex and questioning people are among the worst marginalised and excluded groups in the world. But what does this mean for business? This podcast examines the opportunity that a fully inclusive organisation can offer. Listen in to hear from social impact pioneers and leading voices on LGBTI plus inclusion. Lee Badgett and Ricardo Garcia Tuffer. Lee is a professor of economics and co-director of the Centre of Employment Equity at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and has recently authored The Economic Case for LGBT Equality. Her research and writing focuses on economic inequality of LGBT people, including wage gaps and employment discrimination. Ricardo is a regional financial inclusion specialist for the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, which is part of the World Bank. He's an economist specialised in international development, with more than 25 years of global experience on issues related to financial inclusion and provision of financial services to unserved and underserved segments, such as micro-entrepreneurs, SMEs, women and LGBTI plus groups. Listen in and you are going to get an absolute treat. You're going to hear about how to create LGBTI plus strategies for organisations and If you are involved in diversity and inclusion planning, this podcast is for you. Indeed, if you know anybody who's involved with diversity and inclusion, please do pass this one on. Lee, Ricardo, welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, It's great to have you guys. Lee, I wanted to turn to you first for the first question of our conversation. You have been looking a lot at LGBTQI plus inclusion and what that means to you and why it's important. I'd I'd really like for you to just share with us, why is this a sort of a conversation that we have to be having right now? It's a foundational concept. Inclusion is something that I think has become the way that we, we are now approaching issues around inequality and diversity, equity, however you want to think about that. The way I think about inclusion is to use a definition that we developed for the LGBTI Inclusion Index, working with the UN Development Program. The way we talk about it for LGBTI people is it's access to opportunities. So do you have the ability to to get a job, to get a good education, for example? So that's an important piece of it. And it's also about outcomes. It's also about what your status actually looks like. Is that consistent with human dignity, the income that you make, uh, your health, 
your knowledge that you've developed from education. So it's a little bit different from some of the the way we use other kinds of terms. What I like about that, about thinking about inclusion, is that it really makes us think about every important setting where people live their lives. So I mentioned education. Are people able to go to school? Are they able to get a high quality education by being treated like full human beings? Um, are people are people healthy? Do they have the knowledge that they need, the food that they need, the health services that they need? Do people earn an adequate living? So do they have access to jobs? And when they, uh, what kinds of jobs do they have access to? Is it are these jobs with uh, with reasonable pay and and benefits and a and a good work setting? So it really brings in everything, um, in my view, and it it allows us to talk not just about the stuff that's that's more traditional, like you know, is has some sort of illegal discrimination taken place? You know, there we think about do people have the same opportunity, uh, exactly the same. Um, treatment when they go to apply for a job or when their when their pay is set. So it's much broader than that, much broader than that. And it means that we have to look at at a lot of uh, different possible ways of thinking about that. We have to look at the laws of a country. And for LGBTI people, those laws actually vary quite a bit around the world. There are some countries that recognize marriage equality, like the US, the UK, many another 30 some countries. But there's still countries that that criminalize being someone who uh, who has relationships with people of the same sex, and 65 to 70 countries are in that category. A few of those actually punish homosexuality with death. Uh, so there's a there's a really wide range of, of legal situations that people face. There's a wide range of social acceptance. There's some countries we know from public opinion polls that are very accepting of LGBTI people, and some not so much. And then it makes us kind of look more deeply at at other kinds of other kinds of ways people might be treated. So it's uh, like I said, it really it really makes us think more broadly. The other thing that I think is really nice about having such a broad definition is that it also makes us, you know, think about the circle of acceptance or versus stigma that people might face and how that might matter too. So so people who who know um, that because they are uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or intersex, that they are likely to face some kind of bad treatment uh, out there in the world, they react to that. They might withdraw from certain settings. They might avoid going into settings that that might make them, might expose them to, to some kind of harm. They might try to cover up who they are. And this kind of cycle that's related to the lack of inclusion or exclusion is really bad for people's health. It's really bad for their ability to develop what we call in economics their human capital. It means um, that they that they are not going to be contributing as much to to society and to our economies and to their to our employers uh, as we might want uh, them to do. So, so that's why I think it's important to think about inclusion um, and and to understand how it actually matters both for the LGBTI people themselves. But really, it matters for everybody. Oh, thank you very much for explaining that to us. Ricardo, I wanted to bring you in now. As Lee just talked through, there have been or there are certain countries that have really stepped forward into LGBTQI plus inclusion and the others that haven't, whether from a legal perspective or social acceptance perspective. I was wondering if you could share with me, what does it look like and feel like in terms of 
a positive experience? Like, what's the opportunity if we are truly inclusive that we're at the moment potentially missing out in certain parts of the world? Thank you for the question. And um, I probably will speak more from the perspective of engaging with the private sector since I'm working in the International Finance Corporation, IFC, which is a development organization that basically supports the private sector for, for development. So we have been seeing a lot of progress in, in different countries in terms of a, a legal uh, regulatory environment towards LGBTI. However, that doesn't actually prevent the private sector to be active. And I think uh, there are several examples worldwide that actually uh, brought our attention. And especially when we talk about how a financial sector is engaging in practices that are more inclusive regarding LGBTI people. So there are institutions or are companies are, that are recruiting, retaining, and developing the best talent of LGBTI people at all levels. There also are uh, companies that are expanding their markets uh, through products and services offered and tailored to LGBTI people. Uh, some companies are strengthening compliance and risk mitigation, and some others are basically attracting international investment. And you probably have here also about the ESG standards, environmental, social, and governance standards. There are companies that are actually looking at the social standards and those social standards are basically linked to the possibility of those companies to engage and to be more inclusive towards vulnerable segments. So here we are talking about women, we are talking about uh, migrants and refugees, which is another topic that I'm working with. We are talking about Afro-descendants communities, indigenous communities, and LGBTI people. So there are different ways that uh, companies can engage with that kind of uh, inclusive uh, approach. We have seen that our companies are creating LGBTI-inclusive environments at the workplace. As I mentioned before, some others that are offering products and services, some others that actually are showing certain level of allyship or support and accountability, and actually also lobbying and, um, and bringing advocacy at the governmental level, but also at the civil society level and private sector level. And some others that actually are committed to engage in the ESG practices that I mentioned before, some that are actually developing also allyship, a partnership, sorry, with the civil society and community outreach, and then trying to bring an, in a collective manner more voice in regard to, to inclusive practices. Just an example uh, from my personal experience, I'm coming from financial sector and working actively on engaging with uh, financial institutions for having more inclusive practices and looking at vulnerable segments from the business perspective, but at the same time from the sustainability perspective. We are planning to conduct a gap assessment on financial inclusion for uh, LGBTI people, which will include some information about the demand, uh, profile, needs, aspirations, pain points of LGBTI people regarding financial uh, services. But at the same time, it will identify some enablers and barriers that can actually facilitate that access and also to help us to understand what are the barriers, what are the interests, what is the interest from the financial institutions in regard to serving these segments in a meaningful, meaningful manner. And I had the chance to share a, a study that we conducted in IFC uh, within the uh, Gender and Economic Inclusion team 
regarding inclusive banking that was actually collecting information from different financial institutions worldwide that have been uh, much more active on being more inclusive towards LGBTI people. And I was pleasantly surprised about the interest come, that, that were coming from the from, from bankers. So uh, in my own experience uh, working in the banking sector before, I found myself also in, in situations in which I was feeling I would probably will not have chance to, you know, to progress in my career because I am gay, uh, I'm not married, I am I don't have a conservative approach in my behavior also or or or, or in my politics. And I was thinking, well, my career is going to end here, right? So I think uh, for many people also, they are challenged about those, you know, things, as, as Lee mentioned before. And I think uh, more and more people are more confident to speak up about, about, you know, their, their experience and their social orientation and gender identity. I'm currently uh, being chair of the Employment Resource Group in the IUC focus on LGBTI people. So for me, it has been an achievement along my life, not professionally only, but also uh, the personal side that I can have the chance to speak up about myself. At the same time, you know, bringing confidence to other people like me and creating more awareness and a more inclusive environment for LGBTI people. Thank you so much for sharing. And um, for anybody listening, I will do my best to um, get the links to any of that research that Ricardo just mentioned. Um, if they are public, I'll pop them into the into the words that sit alongside uh, this conversation. Uh, Lee, I want to talk to you a bit about awareness and inclusion in terms of what's holding it back. So there's this massive opportunity, both from a personal perspective, and as Ricardo just shared, you know, literally the ability to think that you'll be able to get a job and keep your job right through to presumably contributions to your GDP at a national level. What is holding back at a sort of global level action to create LGBTI plus inclusion? That is a very big question, I think. But it is interesting because, you know, the the way Ricardo very nicely laid out all the things that businesses are doing, if you ask them why they're doing it, they say it's a it's a business decision. It makes good sense for them from a business perspective. So we call this the business case for LGBTI equality. And they say it means that we can attract and retain the best employees. They will be at their most productive. We will appeal to the widest segment of consumers. So it's a bottom line issue for them. From an uh, if we take that up a level, you mentioned the the global case for um, LGBT equality. It, that is really about thinking about the economy as a whole, not just an individual business, but what we lose from that loss of human capital that, that I mentioned earlier. So in both those cases, whether you're talking about the business level or the economic level, you know, it looks like inclusion is a good thing. And, you know, I'm an economist and people always say, well, if it's such a good thing, why don't people just do it on their own? Why do they need pressure from governments or laws or from activists? And you know, we call that the invisible hand of self-interest in economics. And what we have seen, though, is that all those changes didn't just take place because suddenly there was an awareness about the value of doing it. There were many, many people making that case, pulling together the data that showed that there were problems and that those problems are costly to businesses and society. So you need you need people to to feel empowered, exactly the kind of thing that Ricardo was talking about. Uh, 
that you have a voice that will uh, be listened to and you won't be punished for uh, for using it if you're an LGBTI person. I think I'm also, I'm a lesbian. And I think we we all have seen kind of this, this space emerge where we can talk about these issues in some places, in some settings, but that's not true everywhere. So there are countries where those voices are are held back. People don't feel like they have the the, the, the uh, safety to actually speak out. In some cases, there are some countries that actually make it uh, illegal to talk about uh, uh, things in a positive way about LGBTI people. That uh, Russia just uh, passed a law very recently about that. Um, among other countries, there are places that do not allow LGBTI people to come together in organizations that can register and. And do their work. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done there to create the space for LGBTI people themselves to raise these issues and to talk about it and to build allies uh, who will continue to work with them and take these arguments into, into places where decisions get made, whether those are about policy or about business practices. So I think that's still an issue. That's still an issue. And we could think about that as politics. I mean, it is very political in many ways. People have said uh, some of the, you know, the arguments vary from country to country. Actually, in my view, like every country is still a developing country when it comes to LGBTI inclusion. So we just hear different kinds of things. In the U.S., we hear things like, you know, transgender people are a threat to children in schools. Uh, in other countries, might we might hear that LGBTI rights are really just, uh, you know, kind of a new form of colonialism that some countries say, well, we don't have LGBTI people here, even though there's quite a bit of evidence to the contrary. So they can become an easy scapegoat uh, for for things that politicians don't like or want to make points on. And there's still there's still issues around, um, I think, some religious beliefs. I think if if you look deeply enough, I think within most traditions that I know about faith traditions, there's a there's a develop emerging diversity of opinions where some people are very supportive of LGBTI people and their rights and and others not so much. But but those issues kind of still come there. So that's sort of all on the more political side. I think um I will say more from a, a data side of things, we need more data. <laughs> There literally are only a handful of countries that are collecting really good, rigorous data on LGBTI people, um, and national statistics agencies need to need to take this on. The UN Development Program is starting to ask them for data on LGBTI people, for example, for the LGBTI Inclusion Index, and it's just not there. So LGBTI civil society has jumped into that breach, and they've said, "All right, we'll we'll go collect the data," but it's you know, we need we need lots of different kinds of data. So so I think that's that will help make the case for inclusion as being a priority, both for governments and for development agencies, for businesses. With that data, it's really hard to deny um, the studies that we have not only show loss of education and productivity and poor health, but they show that that matters for, for the global economy of maybe cutting as much as 1% or more of GDP from economies. And, and that's, a, you know, that, that's a significant bite. So I think more data would help us make that case more broadly. Having more freedom to, to speak out about these issues would help other people make that case more broadly. And now I want to talk about the how, because, I mean, that's pretty robust. You know, this is, this is the challenges. You started, Lee, there talking about some of the ways that we can start tackling it. And I was wondering if I could unpack that a little bit more. Perhaps 
Lee, if you wouldn't mind, perhaps you take the business element and Ricardo, if you wouldn't mind taking the individual level, it sounds a bit sort of contrite, but how do we take action to create and help further LGBTI plus inclusion? Ricardo, would you mind going first, perhaps, and then Lee picking up the business side of things? Sure, Katie. I mean, this is a challenging question, right? How we can start taking action from the individual level? I would say that um, and link what Lee before said, we need to be be more visible, be more counted, right? So that is also linked to data. And the reason is that uh, uh, data, if if, if if that exists, it's actually, you know, an estimation of actually, you know, how many people can be counted, can be confident to share what they are and, and how they, they identify, how they feel themselves. For that, um, there should be, you know, an, a level of social acceptance. And that social acceptance comes from your family, comes from your friends, comes from, you know, the people that you are interacting every day. Your, your classmates, your colleagues, etc. If that doesn't exist, it's very difficult for you to, to actually overcome the fear to be rejected and to be also punished for something that is like, you know, the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, the color of your skin, or something that you actually, you know, you, you basically burn with. So it's difficult to, to see to what extent, you know, people can feel more and more confident on that. And I think, uh, Related to what I mentioned before about, you know, the practices that are coming, not only on the private sector, but also in other type of institutions, we see that, you know, those environments are, are or, the, or sorry, there are some efforts to create those environments, right? So as an example that I provide in my own institution, which I'm representing, you know, I'm representing a group of people that we identify ourselves from the LGBTI community, and we like, you know, to improve our uh, working standards and the way that we relate with each other. So it provides that kind of, you know, environment for people to be more and more counted and be actually more active in terms of their voice and bringing also more ideas, innovation and engaging more with all the, you know, people that are vulnerable as well, not only from the LGBTI group, but for example, in my own personal experience, I've been working mostly on, on inclusion in with different kind of vulnerable segments because I feel the same in my own skin, you know? I, I, I pass through a different kind of levels of exclusion and, and, and I experience that out. So I'm empathic in terms, you know, of the experience of people like that. So that's why I'm taking, you know, that kind of role. And I think more and more people that feel more confident with that, I think are going to be more empowered. They're going to be contributing more to whatever they are doing, you know, to their societies, to their to their work, to their studies, etc., and be identified, you know, along different kind of life cycle stages, you know, as single people, as young people, as parents, as elderly, etc. It doesn't have, you know, to be different of, you know, people that don't identify themselves or as LGBTI or are not part of that those parameters of sexual and orientation and gender identity. So I think uh, we will need to have a more enabling environment in general. And that actually comes, you know, generation by generation also, teaching the new generations that we can be more inclusive, we can be more understanding, we can be more compassive. So with that, I think we can actually make a better world for everybody. And everybody can actually, you know, enjoy and, and develop, you know, their own potential 
uh, in a more meaningful manner. Good to hear to that. Thank you very much. Lee, um, what about yourself? I mean, from a, how do businesses take action on this? What's their role and what would be your advice to them? There's always something businesses can do. Um, I think the approach we've, the kinds of approaches that we've seen amongst like big businesses, multinational companies in particular, um, has followed a path that, that Ricardo kind of alluded to earlier, which was they, you know, Sylvia Hewlett and Kenji Yoshino have this little typology that starts with the the when in Rome. So companies, when they operate in a particular country, they go along with the local norms and policies. If they're uh, very hostile to LGBTI people, then they just, you know, and they just kind of take those as given and try to do the best they can for their individual employees. Then a, a, another kind of stage is to... Um, they call this the embassy model. So the company says, well, our policies are of inclusion. So within our walls, we are going to be fully inclusive of LGBTI people. We can't do much about what happens when they leave. And then the third stage is the, the advocate stage where they say, well, maybe we can actually do something about where people go when they, when, when they, leave, our, when they leave our buildings. So I think I've, we've seen in practice that Sometimes companies are at one stage in some countries and uh, farther along in others. Um, but it's it it just it, it I think gives countries uh, companies a sense of uh, of this being a process, not just about checking boxes, but about being continuously proactive and moving along to uh, to to ensure full inclusion. Because a country that operates in a place where LGBTI people are are, are stigmatized or who criminalized, um, it, it, that's not a that's not a country that will will be conducive to to having a, a strong workforce, a strong and engaged uh, workforce. So, so the kinds of things that that we see companies doing, there's you know there are these checklists of policies that that some you know groups keep track of. Stonewall UK, the Human Rights Campaign in the US. There are there are groups all over the world now that are, that are doing these um, kinds of indexes. But I think underlying the change and talking to to companies and seeing these things change over time. It's usually related to their LGBT employees having a voice maybe formally. And lots of these companies have employee resource groups where LGBTI people can come together and support each other and uh, send ideas for change um, up the up the ranks within their companies. And, you know, every now and then I have talked to employers who say, but well, we don't actually have any openly LGBTI people in our in our company. They've got to they've got to uh, get out there and figure out how how to make something happen to start that process. So that could be working with local groups of LGBTI people who are not employees to understand what what issues are. And I think then the the kinds of needs, the things that that, that people need and want to feel fully included will emerge, and that that will be a process that you know will be a dialogue or. Or, or something even broader than that, but that's really where I think it all begins. And if companies don't have those kinds of relationships, it's it's going to be tough to get started. But but they can also talk to their uh, other companies in their in their area. And so we are now also seeing that in many uh, in many emerging markets that that companies are starting to um, to take on some of these same kinds of policies of non discrimination policies, making sure. Benefits are are equal across different kinds of family structures. Making sure that that transgender people can get the kind of health care that they need. These are just some examples. Uh, I think uh, the next wave that I hear uh, pressure building towards has to do with things like you know 
being much more globally conscious about these issues, thinking about supply chains, not just, you know, what what we make or the service we provide, but, you know, who we who we buy goods and services from. Um, are they inclusive? Um, so it's a way to leverage inclusion. And then there are questions about accountability. These have, these have emerged really loud and clear in the U.S. around the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that this is happening much more uh, broadly than that even. But, you know, show us the numbers. There are lots of companies that now um, collect data in one way or another that, that can tell them how well they're doing in terms of hiring LGBTI people. So share those with the public, share those with your investors, share those with your employees. Those are those are all things that, that are... Um, ways to start conversations about what else needs to be done. So it can be a little bit scary, I think, but uh, but it's uh, it, it's going in, you know, uh, in a data informed way, which, um, you know, businesses always uh, like to like like to see. Um, so those would be some uh, some thoughts about how how businesses can actually make that happen. Thank you so much. And we uh, Business Fights Poverty were all about the practitioners. So trying to help those people who are you hopefully listener who are sitting in a multinational or big company uh, trying to make them do more good. So I wanted to challenge you guys. You've obviously given some fantastic, really practical advice there, but I want to challenge you once more. If you were going into a company and you were sort of taking on the mantle to try and um, make it more inclusive, in your sort of first 100 days, pretend you're the president, what would be your top three actions? What would be the, the, the laser focus that you'd really go in and do and and probably things that you've already mentioned but what would be your kind of laser pieces lee i was wondering whether you wouldn't mind going first I mean, what, how would you how would you sort of step into that first day i'm so glad you are pushing us on this because i do think this is like uh this is one of the things that we become so aware of with the covid pandemic how economically vulnerable lgbti people are really in every country and so businesses can definitely play a role in doing that. I think what I would do in stepping in would be to, you know, to, to think about entry-level jobs. We don't hear very much about entry-level jobs in big companies and who uh, who operates those and what companies do to try to, to pull people in. But there are huge opportunities there, I think, to participate in the growing number of job fairs that are popping up around the world. There are possibilities of working with LGBT community organizations to uh, help prepare uh, their members for for work uh, in these these in good formal sector jobs that businesses are hopefully creating. There are uh, there are opportunities to work with them on training issues. The supply chain, I think is a is another way to approach this. So that would be the second thing that I would do would be to to look more closely at the supply chain and to look for opportunities to contract with that edgy new transgender cafe that's just opened up in our city, for example, you know, to do catering for events. I think there are all sorts of ways that that we can be supportive of the needs that are out there that are really almost invisible. Again, I hate to say keep saying data, data, data over and over again, but you know, we just don't have enough of it. But I've been doing working on a project where we've been trying to identify efforts to do more economic empowerment of the LGBTI communities in, in developing countries. And there are efforts. Uh, uh, there aren't a lot of them. They're very small. They need help. Uh, businesses have resources that that can make that happen. But they exist because those community organizations see just how big the need is, and it's especially big for transgender people. We uh, most of the ones we see are transgender people, and they often have very few opportunities 
to earn a living. And so this is uh, this is something that I think businesses could do. So that's at least two things that I would do kind of on the in the first hundred days is start to develop out the, the supply chains and, and looking harder at entry level jobs and ways we could find more LGBTI people who need those jobs. Oh, you had data in there as well. That's three. You got your three. It, that's right. <laughs> I always have data. <laughs> <laughs> and Ricardo, what would be you? What would your first hundred days look like? What would be your sort of top three laser focused actions that you'd focus on? Wow, hundred days. Yes, it's <laughs> like running a government, right? So, so I think uh, the first thing is to identify who will I to undertake, uh, you know, such initiatives and to listen to these people. What is the motivation? what they would like to do in, in, in that regard. There are several areas that we can actually work collectively. And one of those is related to hiring more, more talent. I think everybody's speaking about diversity, equity, and inclusion right now. But what does exactly mean, right? So what, what are the benefits that are bringing to businesses? It's, it's, it's a different vision. It's innovation. It's uh, having more collective thinking. And also uh, empathy and, and identification with who is going to benefit from the services, products, or, or anything that you are providing as a company, right? So in that sense also, I will say that as a next step, it will be to understand whatever market you are targeting. So talking about LGBTI in particular, it's not an homogeneous market or an homogeneous segment, let's put it that way. So it's very diverse, not only because the sexual orientation factors or gender identity factors, but basically because you're talking about people in different life uh, stages. You're talking about people in different civil status. You're talking about people also talking about intersectionality. People are Afro-descendants. People are uh, from indigenous communities. People that are white descendants. And so, so there is a, a mix of different areas that need to be taken into account. And it's important for the the companies to take a human-centric approach in order to understand characteristics, needs, aspirations, pain points of different kinds of groups. So in that sense, they can meaningfully provide some, some value proposition, not only about products and services, but also about how to treat you know, the customers. Who is your staff? Who is actually bringing you know, the ideas and innovation that are going to serve the purposes and the needs of these people, their aspirations of these people, right? So in that sense, I think I will look for that collective action internally. I will empower these people more. And for that, I will need to probably, as, as Lee mentioned, continuously hiring this kind of talent. And then together, we can actually design a strategy or a value proposition that is targeted to the people that, uh, that we want to uh, serve in a meaningful manner. And finally, I think uh, extensively, we can see to what extent we can conduct several other activities that can benefit different groups in the society, conducting some of the work that, that has been uh, mostly known as sustainability and before was known as corporate, corporate social responsibility. So uh, now actually is trying to, to put companies in the position that they can offer something to the, to the society besides you know, the products and services. Lee mentioned something about the value chains. That's something very positive too. So we will see more and more that companies are taking care of that, which is also linked to what I mentioned before, to improving the, the environmental, social, and governance standards at different kind of company levels. So I hope to be successful in 100 days, you know, with these ideas. 
But this is what I see that actually is working. And this is what I see that is working, not only for LGBTI people, but also for other kind of vulnerable segments. For anybody listening, if you are in a role that has anything to do with DEI, LGBTQI um, inclusion, you've basically had your entire strategy sorted out for you in the last uh, 20 minutes. So (laughs) if you're not in that role, please pass it on because this is absolutely liquid gold. Thank you guys so much for for sharing your insights and your wisdom there and and your experience, quite frankly. I wanted to, we're rounding off the conversation now. My last question for you guys, I want to leave on a positive. If we manage to sort out LGBTQI inclusion, if the world suddenly became, okay, right, we've got it. What next? What for you are the emerging issues, but also what's next for you personally? Where are you off to next? Lee, I was wondering whether you might go first. So practice what I preach. I guess I would say, I I think we would see maybe an inclusion dividend, we could call it, uh, that would, um, you know, that would help to, to create the understanding that, that, you know, we have these categories that end up being oppressive but then there, there are lots of other things that, that happen to people in their lives that aren't necessarily about particular social identities that they have, or for example, being more um, kind of trauma aware or, or something like that, that, that would allow us to, to kind of spread what we've learned about inclusion to, to thinking about ways that we empower everybody to be as, uh, as, as, as healthy, as productive, as uh, living a life of dignity as possible. And um, that that would be, I think, my my hope that that would be a lesson we would see the value of it for LGBTI people, and we'd we'd start uh, we'd start making sure that happens everywhere. I think for me, um, I have spent a lot of time in my career studying problems, uh, studying inequality, and I uh, have realized I uh, my next projects are going to be around what to do about them, and getting beyond policy. Policies are very important, absolutely, but I think. Um, with some colleagues, we're starting to, to think about how we can economically empower LGBTI people in a variety of ways and get more, more sectors involved in that effort. So it's not just studying, but it's actually doing. It's kind of figuring out how, how we would invest in LGBTI-owned renewable energy companies or, uh, or creating new healthcare facilities or, or things that will benefit everybody. Uh, uh, how we uh, how we provide skills to LGBTI people, uh, maybe to uh, to make up for the the situations that they have that they have uh, experienced in in educational settings. So trying to to go back in and figure out, you know, what how can we how can we actually take this group of people who are who are uh, who have amazing skills and talents and creativity that's just not being used, and how do we figure out how to how to use that? So that's that, that's where that's where I'm headed right now. Thank you, Lee, and very best of luck on your journey. I hope you are deeply successful throughout. Um, Ricardo, bringing you in, what does what are the emerging trends or issues that you see around the kind of inclusivity and equity piece, and what's next for you? Very good question. I think uh, the emerging trends are that more and more companies, in particular in the private sector, but also in the public sector, are looking at to include diversity, equity, and inclusion as part of their agenda. This is, in a way, an extension of the gender approach with intersectionality. So it's a, it's an approach that not only considers gender as a whole, but actually looking at 
this in different perspectives. One of those is about sexual orientation and gender identity. More and more institutions are looking at to uh, uh, hire, recruit, and, uh, and to also make an enabling working environment for different groups uh, to, to be, become more diverse, to also bring more innovation and leadership uh, towards the efforts on inclusion. Um, in my, part, my, my particular case, I'm working in a development organization, so I would like to see more and more our agenda to be mainstream towards intersectionality, to bring more ideas and further solutions for LGBTI groups and other vulnerable groups. So this is, as I said, more or less what you know uh, companies are looking at right now. Also, this increase or enhance the standards on environment and social and governance uh, for, for these companies so they can attract more impact or, or social impact investors. And besides that, I would be happy to, you know, to see more and more projects uh, being focused on LGBTI inclusion uh, for all the, the aspects that we discuss along in this podcast. So from the personal side, I think uh, uh, it would be a great achievement to see, you know, LGBTI approaches and projects to be mainstream and to be the focus of any agenda that we may have in terms of poverty reduction and shared prosperity. Well, on those massively positive and empowering words, Lee, Ricardo, thank you so much for sharing with me today. And I wish you both all the very best and success. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Thanks. This was a great conversation. I've learned a lot from talking with both of you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.